Well, hello and greetings from Soma Grand Rapids Church. Uh, my name is Anthony Rafa. I'm one of the co-pastors here. Uh, I co-pastor with Aaron Goodrich, and he and his wife, Glory, planted Soma Grand Rapids Church just a few years ago now. Um, and I just wanted to, to share with you that our church family hopes that you are safe and well. And although we've never met you, we've prayed for you. Uh, we've prayed for you in our gatherings. We've prayed for you in our missional communities. And I know my wife and I have individually been praying for you as well. And we pray that, um, that you've experienced the grace and peace of our Heavenly Father in these unique circumstances. And uh, that we may all continue to abide ever more securely in the vine and in the love of the Father and bear much fruit for his glory, even in these strange times. So what I wanted to start out with was talking about how we share news, share announcements. I think with phones, you know, if something happens in your life or, or something you want to share with somebody, you immediately text, you immediately post it to social media or something like that, right? We don't really go run and tell somebody. But our story today is going to begin with somebody running to go tell some news. And so I thought I'd ask at the very beginning here, when was the last time you ran to tell somebody something? Um, and I'll go first. Uh, for my wife and I, um, we have had the gift of uh, being in the adoption process for a little boy. Uh, we've had him since the day he was born, and now he's four months old. And I remember I was working here in my office, and my wife just ran in, and I thought something might be wrong. She said, come here, come here. So I went uh, downstairs with her, and um, she showed me that he was giggling. Now, he had been giggling, but just kind of here and there, but this time it was over and over. And that just big old smile and that little laugh, she just didn't want me to miss it. And so she ran to tell me. So I would ask you, when was the last time you ran? It could have been something that was going on in your house. And, and if you have kids, I would encourage you to ask your kids because a lot of times they're the ones that are running inside to come tell you some story about what happened outside. So take a second and, and think back. When was the last time you ran to tell someone some news? So today we're going to be continuing in the John series. And so if you have your Bible or you have a phone, uh, you could turn with me to John chapter 19, starting in verse 38, or you can tap there on your phone. And previously in the chapter, this story has been somewhat horrifying. Jesus has been flogged and beaten. Roman soldiers have attempted to humiliate Jesus with a crown of thorns and a robe draped over his open wounds. His own people have abandoned him and even demanded that he be crucified, and he was. Jesus received some sour wine and said it was finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But thank God that is not the end of the story. So we're going to pick up this story uh, just after the death of Jesus and find out what happens to him and his disciples. And here's what I want us to remember. When we recognize our need, Jesus reveals himself to us and gives us what we need to respond in faithfulness. 
Let me say that one more time. When we recognize our need, Jesus reveals himself to us and gives us what we need to respond in faithfulness. Now, as I'm talking through this text, I would love for you to ask yourself this question. Which character do I identify with most? And you might identify with more than one, but but here are the characters. There's Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Peter, John, and Mary. So of those characters which we'll be talking about, which one do you sense that you identify with most? So hopefully you've had a chance to find John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. And the first point that we're going to see from this text is that the cross of Christ gives us courage. The cross of Christ gives us courage. So 19, 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, while little is known about Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, it's worth noting that all four Gospels mention him by name. Usually, the bodies of criminals um, were really mistreated. They were often left to birds or vultures uh, for them to pick at. But Joseph must have had some sort of high standing because he, he got permission from Pilate to give Jesus a proper burial. For him to be able to have that request get all the way to Pilate and for Pilate to grant that request tells us a little bit about him, that he must have been someone of some sort of stature. It seems that before the death of Jesus, this Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. And it says he feared the Jews who opposed Jesus. And perhaps it was this influential standing in the city that kept him from being an open disciple. But Joseph wasn't the only one. Nicodemus was there as well. And if you remember back earlier in John, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night in chapter 3. And again, I don't know if this is necessarily because of fear, but it seems like, man, there were many people that were approaching Jesus during the day. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to ask him his questions. Potentially, he was also afraid of how the Jews would respond if he was seen openly talking with Jesus. Whatever that happened between chapter 3 and our chapter here, or, or whatever happened in Joseph of Arimathea's life, it would seem that these two were no longer secret disciples. I mean... To have your name mentioned in all of the Gospels, think about how many times Joseph of Arimathea has been mentioned by name. 
These actions before Pilate and the wealth that was offered to bury a man that was accused of treason and sedition are anything but cowardly. Don't forget, when Mary took one pound of perfume to anoint Jesus' feet, Judas was appalled that she would use a year's wages. Now, myrrh and aloe were common, uh, especially for burial. But think about 75 pounds. If Jesus was a 150-pound man, this would have been half of his body weight. It's incredible. But John wants us to notice something else in this scene. A garden with a new tomb. One commentary noted that the Old Testament and much of ancient literature, uh, there, there's an explicit connection between gardens and kings. The careful and intentional reference to a garden as a place of the burial of Jesus was, quote, intended to make an extremely important symbolic point. The tomb of Jesus, like that of David and other Davidic rulers, is located in a garden. But one of these tombs is not like the others, right? Because this one will have someone laid in it who will get up again and never taste death. My friends and I were were talking about some old movies that we like to watch, and particularly those around the holidays, and someone mentioned Home Alone. And I don't know why uh, this is the image that came to mind, but I felt like when Jesus arises from the dead, it's like he looks at the grave uh, and says, keep the grave clothes, you filthy animal. Right? Like, he is just risen. He is the king of kings. Now, when Joseph and Nicodemus recognize Jesus, even in his death, the two are given courage to come out of hiding. There's something so amazing about the cross. Jesus' death not only paid for our sins, but on a cosmic level, Jesus' death dealt a death blow to death. The cross was intended to shame Christ, but instead it shamed the powers and the principalities of this world. Instead of being embarrassed, Christ embarrasses those who sought to embarrass him. I don't know much about martial arts, but I know a little bit about judo, that you kind of use the weight of your opponent against them. As they kind of throw their weight, you go with them. And and here goes Jesus, right? Death comes to him, and he accepts it willingly for the sake of others. I mean, it's just incredible that this would happen. The cross was intended to instill fear into the hearts of Jesus' disciples, and in some ways it did. But in other ways, the cross gives the disciples great courage. If you remember in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted, to the point of shedding your blood. When it comes to the cross, I can't imagine the temptation it would be to be unfaithful to God the Father in that moment, right? To sin, to rebel against God. In that moment, the temptation must have been so great. And yet Jesus resisted to the point of shedding his own blood. When we see our king live for us in this way, it gives us great courage that we can resist rebellion 
and be loyal and be faithful to the king who is loyal and faithful to God and also in ways to us. When I think about this kind of courage, you know, we're not going to have the opportunity to bury Jesus again. But I think it takes small acts of courage to be faithful. For example, one way that I, I think it's, it's actually courageous and faithful to live is to admit when we're wrong and confess our sin to one another. I know this seems like elementary maybe, but so often when we sin against someone, we, we actually give a little defense. Well, I know I did this to you, but, you know, it was just like, and we give some sort of out. It's, it's rare that a person will actually confess that they've sinned against someone else and leave it at that. I have wronged you. I said this about you because I was bitter and angry. And then simply ask, will you forgive me? That is a different way to live. It takes courage because we want to be our own defense. But when we courageously say, I have no defense but Jesus. The cross of Christ has saved me from my sin. And so I can be honest about my sin even against you. It's a courageous step. And the more we take those steps, I think the more courageous we will actually live. We will be faithful to Jesus because we have seen the cross give us courage. So if the cross of Christ gives us courage, what does the empty tomb give us? Well, let's keep reading. Starting in chapter 20, verse 1, and reading through verse 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid them, laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So, if the cross of Christ gives us courage, the empty tomb gives us conviction. Now, we're going to get to Mary in just a minute, and what an amazing gift she receives. But for now, let's just focus on Peter and John. And again, just to remind you, who do you kind of identify with? Do you identify with Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus? Do you identify with Peter or maybe John? I love how John tells the story. Everybody is running. 
Mary runs to tell Peter and John. Peter and John are running to go see. And and then we get this comment in verse 4, right? And it just reminds me of two really good friends or or an older brother and a younger brother, right? In verse 4, it says, Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. But not to come off too haughty, John admits he won the race, but he ain't walking into no tomb by himself. Peter is the bold one who's willing to do that. You know, as I read stories like this, and I I think of what a gift it is to have these Gospels kept for us for millennia. It speaks to the humanity that these were real people with real emotions, with laughter and humor and also great love and, 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 and sadness at times. And I love to see this this little picture into the relationship of John and Peter, that they were able to kind of rib each other a little bit. I just think that's so fun. But let's notice some of the details. First is the grave clothes. John is testifying to the world that Mary gave an accurate account, that Jesus' body is not in the tomb, but the grave clothes are. Grave robbing was common enough at the time that this would have been a real possibility. And consider the circumstances as well. This was a rich man's tomb, and it's probably a concern around a rich man's tomb to have grave robbers. In fact, it became common enough that 10 years later, Emperor Claudius would decree capital punishment for destroying tombs, removing bodies, or displacing the stones meant to seal the entrance. But the question is, what robber wastes time removing the grave clothes from the body? And in this case, taking the body, um, you know, not to be too gross, but this is, this is a, a body that was destroyed. It was mutilated. Um, it was covered in aloes. It would have been slick. Um, and you would imagine it would be slippery. It just doesn't seem like the smartest move if you wanted to take the body. You just keep it in the grave clothes to move it. Now, let's also look at verse 8. It says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Now, at the end of this chapter, John explicitly gives the reason why he wrote this gospel. If you can look there, look at verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's moment of believing and having life in Jesus' name. What an incredible moment. For him, this is probably the most important part. This is it. This is where he saw and believed. But look up just one verse from there. In verse 29, Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not, yet, uh, who have not seen and have yet believed. If the cross gives us courage, the empty tomb gives us conviction. 
My dad um, has his PhD in psychology, and he's told us uh, the story many times of how when he was working to complete his dissertation, he had asked for so many extensions that the department finally said no. And he said that when they told him no, he was so caught off guard and shocked that he, you know, he felt so upset. Like, what was he going to do? He didn't feel like there was enough time for him to finish, which is why he was asking for another extension. Now, this was before my father became a believer, but he he had this idea in his head. He said to himself, "If, if I believed that I would finish my dissertation by the due date, what would I do today? What would I do today? And with that thought, he said, well, I would probably, I'd, I'd start making some phone calls. I'd get down to the library and start doing some things here. I'd, I'd you know, organize some stuff. So, so he started to make this list of the things he would do today if he believed he would finish on the due date and he would do those things that day. And he did this day after day after day. And by God's grace, he finished by the due date. Now for us, here's my question. What would we do today if we believed the resurrection happened? What would we do today if we believed that Jesus rose from the dead? What would that change for you? Like think, like actually ask yourself that question. Jesus is risen. He died and he will be raised and never die again. What what does that mean for me? How will I live today? I think it gives us a firm conviction that our faith is is so primary, that that is the utmost thing. And so I would encourage you to ask yourself that question, even daily. Lord, I know you are raised. What does it look like for me to live like I believe that today? So finally, we get to the last section of our text, John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. And it says this, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, which for kind of our terminology today might have been more like Miss. Miss, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, or Miss, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. 
The last point is this. The risen Lord gives us a commission. The risen Lord gives us a commission. So let's use our sanctified imaginations to to visualize this scene. Most of us have lost loved ones, and some of us may have gone to mourn at the gravesite. So imagine walking up to the gravesite of someone that you love, only to find what looks like evidence that the body has been stolen. What emotions would you have? You know, maybe she was angry. Maybe she was angry at what seemed like further mistreatment of Jesus. Like, didn't they already do enough to mistreat him? And now this happens. Maybe she felt deserted by John and Peter because it says they've returned home and here she is kind of walking around and and still mourning and grieving. Or maybe she was searching for clues about what happened as she mourned wondering where could they have taken him and looking for who she could ask. Whatever she was feeling, she was so focused that she saw and talked to two angels and didn't even blink. Two angels and didn't even blink. And when she saw Jesus, she didn't recognize him. When I read this story... Personally, I can't help but identify with Mary. I'm a person that's usually kind of like a man on a mission, and I imagine her to be somewhat like me. I, I tend to struggle with resentment. And I could see myself in Mary thinking, you know, where is everyone else? Why did they go home? Doesn't anyone care about where this body is? I'd be looking so hard for Jesus that I would not even realize that I was looking at him. And I, that bothers me about myself, but I think it's true that I'd be looking so hard for Jesus that I would not even recognize that I'm looking at him. And you can hear it in her voice when the angels ask her in verse 13, Miss, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And she turned around and saw Jesus standing, and she didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And when he said to her, Miss, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She thought him to be the gardener and said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then she hears him say her name, Mary. And as I imagined this scene, you know, I thought there's something, there's something incredibly special about hearing someone that loves you say your name. I lost my grandmother uh, in January of 2019. And it was not a complete surprise, but it was certainly um, quicker than we had expected. I was uh, on an international trip. It was just after Christmas. And we had just seen her, and she, she seemed normal. And that was the last time.
That was the last time I heard her voice. Sorry. And I can still hear her say, I love you, Anthony. And I just, I imagine Mary considering the grief and thinking, I'm never going to hear his voice again. I mean, this was a man who preached sermons. She had heard his voice all over. And not only would she never hear his voice, he would never say her name. And yet here, when he says her name, Mary, she immediately recognizes him. John tells us in another part of his gospel in chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Let me read it to us. Chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When Mary hears Jesus say her name, she turns and she recognizes him immediately. She hears his voice and she, she knows him and he knows her. She must have grasped at him and Jesus reminded her to social distance. Just kidding. Jesus reminded her that he had not yet ascended. And then he gives her a commission in verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. When we recognize Jesus, we receive a similar commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. And he reminds us, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'll speak for myself, but I think it's not just me. I can get so easily distracted by other missions, even missions to find Jesus. But in my activity about Jesus or around Jesus, I don't even know when I'm, when I'm looking at him. And I say that to, to encourage anyone who's just like me. It's, it's about the commission we've been given we are called to go and make disciples, to share the good news in our everyday life. This doesn't have to be some grand speech. It could just be in a conversation with your housemate. It could be a conversation over the phone with someone you love, reminding them of the good news of Jesus in such a strange world that we live in. 
I've even found that sometimes sharing the gospel looks like confessing sin. Now, I'm not talking about airing your, your dirty laundry in any way, but what I'm saying is confessing my rebellion against God. Like I mentioned before, I, I struggle with resentment. And, and I openly admit that because I need a Savior, just like everyone in the world needs a Savior. And my resentment, I, I try to use resentment to, to motivate me, to, to get me going through the day, but, but resentment isn't love. Love should be motivating me. Christ should be motivating me. And so I will say that, you know, I'm dealing with resentment today, and I'm so thankful that Jesus can remind me that resentment doesn't save me. And so what is it for you? What, what is it that motivates you, the, the mission that you're on in, in your own heart that is apart from the gospel or apart from Jesus? May I call you back to the commission that Jesus gave to each and every one of us. So, which character do you identify with? And what is your need in this season? Do you need courage? Look to the cross of Christ. Do you need conviction? Look to the empty tomb. And you need to be reminded of the commission. Look to our risen Lord. Might I encourage each of us every day this week to take five minutes, just five minutes in the morning and ask Jesus to reveal himself in your circumstances and in your day. When we recognize our need, Jesus reveals himself to us and gives us what we need to respond in faithfulness. May Jesus reveal himself to us and give us gifts so that we can have complete security, whatever life throws at us. Well, amen. Thank you, Anthony, for blessing us today. And if you think of it, be in prayer for our brothers and sisters there in uh, Grand Rapids. There's also Soma Detroit and other churches in the uh, Soma Midwest region. So if you think of those brothers and sisters, be in prayer for them. Well, on that amazing note uh, that Anthony brought us to, we are now going to take communion together. I'm going to give you a chance in just a second to go get the elements um, if you haven't already. So just stay with me for a minute. Uh, I want to give a small confession. I'm currently taking a Baptist history and polity course. I can just feel the yawns through the camera already. But uh, One thing that this course has reminded me of that I'm grateful for is just how significant for us uh, as a community, as Baptists, just how significant the Lord's Supper is. And I must confess, here's the confession, that at times I think during our online reality, we maybe, I maybe haven't emphasized the significance of this act, of this ordinance, uh, quite the way that uh, I ought to. And so this morning, I want us to remind us of what this means for us. See, many things we do as believers, as Church of the City, particularly under normal uh, circumstances when we're gathering together physically, many of the things that we do are invitational in nature. The gathering itself, right? It's open and welcome for anyone and everyone to come to, uh, to worship with us, to learn more about God. 
the singing, right? Another great invitational moment. The people who aren't yet quite sure how they feel about Jesus can, can uh, lift up their voices in song and feel things uh, that maybe they've never felt before as a result. But the Lord's Supper is, is different than those things, friends. The Lord's Supper, in a sense, represents a boundary. Something that we believe uh, should only be done by those who've put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Now, if you're watching this today and, and you're still maybe on the fence about how you feel about Jesus, you're still figuring all this out, your first thought might be, aha, I knew, I had heard before, or I had suspected that Christians were, uh, were, were quite exclusive or, or had this sort of superiority complex. And here it is. I've been waiting for it and here it is. But far from it actually, far from it. See, this is a reminder for us as followers of Jesus. Communion is a reminder that in Anthony's words, we are needy people. This is what this act represents in one sense, that we are needy people, utterly dependent on the grace of God, but that in him, we have everything we could ever need. And so, uh, this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. And if you are still figuring out what you think about Jesus, then stop and observe and reflect because maybe God wants to speak to you in a new and profound way this morning. And so now we're going to pause uh, and give you a chance to gather uh, the bread and the juice together if you haven't done that already. Uh, and then I'm going to offer a prayer for us, leading into us taking the elements. All right, church, hear this prayer offered up on our behalf to God, and then afterwards we'll take both elements together, okay? Holy and gracious God, accept our praise. Through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who on the night he was handed over to suffering and death, took bread and gave thanks, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This is my blood, which is shed for you. When you do this, do it in memory of me. Remembering, therefore, his death and resurrection, we offer you this bread and this cup, giving thanks that you have made us worthy to stand in your presence and serve you. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon the offering of your holy church. Gather into one all who share in these sacred mysteries, filling them with the Holy Spirit and confirming their faith in the truth, that together we may praise you and give you glory through your servant, Jesus Christ. All glory and honor are yours, Father and Son, with the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Church, now and forever. Amen. Let's take these together. <clears throat> 